Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. It's the last book of what is called the Pentateuch. Why is it called the Pentateuch? There's five books, right? It's a Pentagon. Hey, while you're doing that, I want to highlight some of that's in your bulletin this morning. Uh, our women's uh, Christmas banquet coming up Friday, November 30th. Uh, hey, just a couple of details about that. We need you to sign up for this. Uh, and this is a catered event. Sign up for yourself. Sign up for friends and neighbors to come to this event. It's going to be a great time. I heard, I, this may or may not be true, but I heard that the, the meal is filet sliders with demi-glaze sauce. Um, and so this is why we need you to sign up, because we're going to be actively slaughtering cattle for the next couple of weeks. So that our women here can be enjoying this Christmas bank. It's going to be a great time. Uh, we have Amy Tijan is speaking on hospitality. Code uh, Black is going to be leading uh, worship for that event. Uh, Deanna Kaiser is organizing this. We can talk with her. We can talk to my wife, Mary Finley. You can sign up for RSVP at the website via the email or through CCB. So I want to highlight that and set a flyer in your bulletin. Let's get to God's word this morning. Deuteronomy chapter 5, verses 12 through 15. This is the other place last week we read the uh, Ten Commandments account in Exodus chapter 20. We began to look at the uh, Lord's Day or the Sabbath. And this week we look at Deuteronomy chapter 5 account in the Ten Commandments. Hear God's word. Observe the Sabbath day and keep it holy as the Lord your God commanded you. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the Sabbath day is a Sabbath of the Lord your God, and on it you shall not do any work with you, or your son, or your daughter, or your male servant, or your female servant, or your ox, or your donkey, or any of your livestock. For the sojourner who is within your gates, and your male servant and female servant may rest as well as you. You should remember that you are a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God brought you out from there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God commands you to keep the Sabbath day. This is the reading of God's holy word. May grass grow the flower fade. May the word of our God stand forever. Well, we didn't worship order around rest this morning because we so desperately need rest. We are perhaps the most exhausted culture the world has ever known. Some of you are just simply exhausted people. It just seems like referring to your physical states. Um, this is a story that has, I think, rolled around the various kind of campus outreach world because of the connections to Briarwood and Birmingham. But there are two Sanford, not Stanford, Sanford Bible students who were sent out on a project to share the gospel. And so they go out to the surround outside of Birmingham to the Alabama countryside, and they pull up to a particularly small house, and they walked around to find whoever was the, kind of the head of the household. And there was this horde of children out front. Um, they were kind of half-clothed, dirty, disheveled kids. There was, it was a muggy and hot day. There were dogs kind of running amok, just kind of yipping. And, and then at one point as they were walking back to the back part of the house, a chicken went running past these two uh, Bible students. And there in the back of the house was, was a woman. She was stooped over, and she was scrubbing something in a, in a, in a big tub. And her, there was sweat coming down her face. And she had hair that was kind of disheveled and, and messy and kind of running over her face and in, in her eyes. And as she stood up, compared to the picture, she stands up as they come to the back and she 
brushes her hair out with her forearm, and the young man said this, ma'am, we want to tell you how to have eternal life. In her response, she said, well, boys, thank you, but I don't think I can stand it. <laughs> eternal life. I don't want to live another day. I'm so tired. My wife can attest to this. I would say at least three or four times a week as we're getting into bed. I say something along the lines of, I want to sleep forever. I want to sleep for a thousand years. If I could find a doctor who would do it, I would ask them to put me into a medical-induced coma so that I could just get a few weeks of rest and relaxation. We are exhausted people. When people ask how I'm usually doing, I usually answer good or fine or Jesus loves me or it's getting better every day. But inside, what actually screams is this, is I am just so tired. I am tired. Claire Paquette made fun of me one Sunday after I was preaching. She said, I've never heard anybody talk about longing for sleep more than you. <laughs> I told Claire to go get four kids and then come back and talk to me. Listen, there's more than just a need for physical rest. We have a weariness that goes deeper than simply our physical exhaustion. We have a soul, a soul weariness. We have a rest that goes deep down to the very core of who we are. Ray Cortez tells a story about a woman in his church who was exhausted by life. So this woman had flown out, this week she was talking to her, flown out to California to be next to her adult son who was fighting a losing battle within the final days in a losing battle against a terminal illness. This was the fourth son or grandson this woman had lost. And she looked at Pastor Cortez and she says this, and every time I lose one of these men in my life, I go, I don't think I can take it. I don't think I can take it anymore. What is God's word to a weary people who live in a sorrowful and broken world. God says, I have a Sabbath rest that reaches deeper and restores you not just in body, but in soul. You see, you suffer from an exhaustion that is physical, but is also spiritual. We need a soul rest. There's a famous story about a lady named Miss Hattie that during the civil rights march from Selma uh, to Burke to Montgomery, an elderly lady named Miss Hattie, she was walking along this long journey along the road there, and the head of the march came up to her and says, come on, Miss Hattie, go ahead and get on the bus. You've walked far enough. And Miss Hattie's response was, well, my feet is tired, but my soul is resting. But my soul is resting. Listen, you can actually have a soul rest even when you're physically tired. The Sabbath is given to us for this purpose, to lead our souls to rest. How does Sabbath do that? The Sabbath does that by reorienting us, by reorienting us, by realigning us, and it does by pointing us in three places. That's what we're going to look at this morning. Those are your points. So the Sabbath gives us rest, soul rest, by reorienting us. Reorienting us. First, the Sabbath gives us rest by reorienting us to God. It reorients us to God. Sabbath is a day for focusing on and reflecting upon the greatness and the power of God. It is a day to recalibrate our lives. To calibrate something is to adjust the, the, the reading of an instrument to a standard or an objective standard. 
And the truth is this, is that we live our lives, and so often our emotions and our, our, our priorities get all sort of out of whack. And what is true gets all convoluted with what's mixed up with what is felt by us. To something, and so what we need is to calibrate our lives to something that is an objective truth, to a standard that does not move, that, does, that rises above the, the ruckus and the noise of life. So I introduce you to an unchangeable, immutable God. An objective standard by which you might calibrate your view of the world and view of your life. The Sabbath is about resting in order to reset your life around who God is. Around who God is. In other words, this is not just another day off of work. See, many, many of you are really good at taking days off of work, but you don't actually Sabbath rest. In other words, like one pastor put it, he said this, there are some who have Sabbath days, but they do not have a Sabbath heart. They recreate, but they do not recalibrate by focusing their Sabbath day around who God is. Around who God is. And when we reorient and recalibrate our lives around God, we come to recognize one very important thing that should give you great rest. And it's this truth, that you are not God. And when you recalibrate your life around the God who is, it reorganizes it and brings you to the recognition once again that you are not God. This is an incredible recalibration. We must come to terms with the fact that we cannot go 120 miles an hour, 10 days a week, and think that there will not be physical and emotional and spiritual repercussions. So many of you are living life at a pace that is simply not sustainable. And the Sabbath, by reorienting us about who God is, reminds us that we are invincible, that we are not invincible, that we are decaying dust, that we will return to dirt one day, just as a word of encouragement to you. That you are not God, and there are limits to what you can do physically and mentally and emotionally. Here's from a guy named Mark McKinnon who wrote a great book called The Rest of God. It's a, I think maybe the best book I've read on Sabbath and Sabbath keeping. Here's what he talks about, about how our, our pace will have the effect it has on us. I think it's a lengthy quote, but I think it'll be on the screen for you. Here's what he says. Indeed, all things not God, all things made by God, goats and oats, scarab beetles and pine needles, dragon lizards and dragonflies, need rest. And maybe especially us. Because unlike goats and beetles and flies and lizards, we try to outwit and outrun our limits. We think we're the exception, the one for whom busyness will translate into fruitfulness. We think because we figured out ways to build impossibly tall, live buildings and dig immensely deep, broad holes to spy on babies in the womb, to tease out strains of DNA, to send whole computer files from New York to Nairobi in a split second, we think because of our industry and ingenuity seems boundless, we can also figure a way around our God-imposed need for stillness. We can't. The need is not conjured away by medication, technology, Discipline, cleverness, sheer willfulness, it always comes back to take its due. If you don't embrace a rhythm of rest in your life, it's going to come back to you, and you will reach a place in your life where you will hit physical or emotional rock bottom, and you will be completely defeated. Therefore, here's what we need. 
If you're going to be reoriented to the God who is, we must cease. Sabbath is a day for ceasing. When you Sabbath, you are not, you're, you're setting aside the to-do list. You're putting it aside. Let me put it this way, because I, I, it's the great thing about doing two parts on the same topic, because I got to hear from our community groups last week in various comments. Let me be very clear. Sabbath season does not simply mean that you cease from your vocational activity. That may be the primary thing, primary thing that you use, but I would say it goes beyond this. Uh, Jane uh, Barrero said it well to me last week when we were talking, and she talked about what her, her father used to say in northern Mississippi was this, the Sabbath is a day for not getting ahead. That's the Sabbath school. It doesn't mean you cease from your vocational money-making. It's ceasing from trying to get ahead, which means this. You don't try to plan out your week. You don't do your meal planning on Sabbath. You're not creating your to-do list. Do it on Thursday the week before. Get these things done before the Sabbath. You're not trying to get ahead. What it means is that you take a break from your constant push to move forward. You cease doing and enjoy being for a little bit. As a cultural application, let me say this, ceasing almost in depth, it definitely means this, that we have to find some ways to get quiet, to get silence. There's actually an article that we used back in the New York Times that talked about a secular Sabbath, that, um, that millennials and that uh, the kind of your younger professionals are realizing that in order to get rejuvenated for their work week, the thing that they most need to do is to turn off with technology. And therefore, what they're, what they're doing is their Sabbaths now, these aren't it's, it's super effective because you'll never get the soul rest they need. There's no spiritual element to it. But they, they long for quiet in a world where there is constant noise. Where we can't we'll go take a drive, we can't ride a bike, we can't go on a walk without listening to an audiobook or listening to music or somebody texting us. We or something vibrating on our body. There is constant noise. You must cease. We must be quiet. There are breakthroughs and insights about who God is that you will not get until you get quiet and you stop moving around so much. And the psalmist understood this. Psalm 62, verse 1 says this For God alone my soul waits in what? Silence. Some of you are so busy talking and yammering and running around, you can't hear from God. I will be exalted, and God says, come, come for my salvation. Psalm 26, verse 10, it says this, Be still and know that I am God. Be still. Be quiet. We should be quiet on the Sabbath. We should get silence. We need to slow down so we might incline our ear to hear from the Spirit of the living God through His words. Isaiah, actually the prophet Isaiah comes to the people of Israel, it says one of the things which God is judging their lack of Sabbath keeping, it says this in Isaiah 30, verse 15, For thus says the Lord God, the Holy One of Israel, In returning in rest you shall be saved. In quietness and in trust shall be your strength. But you were unwilling. Brothers and sisters, you are given each and every day a rhythm of one day in seven. God said, I offer you my salvation of rest and quiet that you were You were unwilling to get quiet, to cease all your getting ahead in life. You need to say to yourself, you're not the one who runs the world. That's why we can't stop, right? We think if we would take our hands off the wheel, so to speak, 
that we can't trust God to take things for us. Matt Chandler, I think, has a good ditty on this. He says this, listen, people, puppies and kittens won't burst into flame because you got parts. <laughs> the world won't come to an end, and your children won't starve because you sit silently and in quiet, listening to the Lord for a few hours. We resist resting because we struggle with the idea of removing control of our lives and therefore trusting the Lord's. So many of you are carrying the weight of responsibility that God has set his own for him to carry. And it is emotionally devastating you. In other words, life's sorrows and life's pains come at you time and day after day and year in and year out. And yet you never find a place where you can let loose of the anguish of your soul before the Lord. It used to be in a great society you could get out and you could walk in the woods and the fields. Now if you did this, you would end up screaming to God in someone's front yards. We long and we need to find a place where we can emotionally come over and lay at that speed and say, God, I am not God, but you are. Take my sorrows and take my anguish, take the weight of these things that I have been bearing all week, but remind me that you're the one who's actually the one who's responsible for bringing salvation. We talk about keeping the Sabbath holy, but the reality, if you keep the Sabbath, the Sabbath will keep you saved. will keep you saved. Therefore, in light of that, keeping the Sabbath by seeking is this. It is an act of faith. It is an act of trust. You're saying, God, I trust that you will provide for me, that you will care for me, that you will protect me, even when I remove control of my life. Marvin Dawn has a great book on the Sabbath. It's a, she gets a little bit weird. She's a mystic. So she talks about some bizarre things every once in a while, but I think it would be a well-worth read for many of you. She says this, a great benefit of Sabbath-keeping is that we learn to let God take care of us, not by becoming passive and lazy, but in the freedom of giving up our feeble attempts to be gods in our own lives. So you reorient, if you get soul rest by reorienting yourself to God, and with that also recognizing that you're not it, you're not it. Second way, the Sabbath reorients us. It reorients us to grace. It reorients us to grace. I, I very purposely wanted to speak this morning and read at the beginning from Deuteronomy chapter 5 in the account of the Ten Commandments there on the Sabbath. It says this the Sabbath, whereas it's grounded in creation principle in Exodus chapter 20. And Deuteronomy chapter 5, the reason why God gives to the Israelites this Sabbath rest, and he grounds it in their redemption out of Egypt. He says this in verse 15. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God brought you out from there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Here's what God's saying. God is commanding rest to remind us this critical theological truth that our salvation does not come by the work of our hands, it comes by the grace of God and the grace of God alone. This is what he's reminding the people of Israel about. You are saved by grace through faith, not by works. You know, when he got, you didn't see here, he refers to the fact that it's God who saves Israel. When the Israelites come out of Egypt and they cross the Red Sea and all the Egyptian army is destroyed, it's God brings the Red Sea crashing down upon them. What you don't see is the people of Israel strutting around the desert talking about all how they defeated the great Egyptian army themselves. No, right? They didn't do it. God saved them. God is the one who took out Egypt. And here we move to the heart of our soul restlessness the weirdness that resides deep down inside of us. 
It is this, that we have a hard time experiencing deep soul rest because we view salvation still often, inherently deep down inside of us, we view salvation as being accomplished by us. By us. What is always the value system? Think about this in the context of the way the Ten Commandments, when the Ten Commandments is given in light of the Sabbath. What was the value system of the world in which the Israelites had lived in Egypt? How did they think about themselves? When you are a slave, that your worth is measured by what? By the degree to which you can produce. Your, their worth as slaves in Egypt came out was about how much, they, how many bricks they could produce for pyramids. If you couldn't produce as a slave, you were worthless. So brick after brick after brick, the Israelites got drilled into them, and their value came from productivity. It came from their outputs. Walter Brueggemann, who's a, a scholar, talks on the Ten Commandments, said this about the Sabbath. He said the Sabbath is about work stoppage. It is about withdrawal from the anxiety system of Pharaoh. The, the refusal to let one's life be defined by production and consumption in the endless pursuit of personal and private well-being. Sabbath keeping is hard for us. It feels impossible for us. We have a yada, yada bites deep down inside us about Sabbath keeping because we have built our identity, our worth, our acceptability on how much we can accomplish and produce in this world. It's about what you can do. Your value and your worth is about what you can do instead of who you are. As Christians, I think we have sadly, we have a sadly skewed the beauty of Sabbath keeping and instead has swallowed the productivity ethos and ethic of our culture such that the fourth commandment, I don't know if it's the, the commandment of the Ten that we violate the most often, but it is the only commandment that as Christians we brag about not keeping. How do we do that? We do. We brag about not keeping this. We talk about, man, our parents work ethic, and, and my goodness, I put 80 hours in this. We always talk about how many hours we, we calculate the number in our head and it's been this long since I had a holiday or I had a vacation or I've gone this many weeks working and this many days in a row. These are things we almost seem to brag about in our life. Why? Because our productivity, for so many of us, it is our righteousness. It is how you know you're acceptable and you're worthy in this world. We must constantly be doing because that is the measure of who we are. If I have little work, then I have little Work. Tim Keller talks about this in his, he's got this little book called The Freedom of Self-Forgiveness. And he actually references a Vogue magazine quote of Madonna where she said this. This is Madonna. She said, my drive in life is from this horrible fear of being mediocre. And it always, it's always pushing me, pushing me. Because even though I've become somebody, a big somebody, big as somebody, I still have to prove that somebody, my struggle has never ended and it probably never will. Does this just sound exhausting? Always, always, everything in life trying to prove that you are someone, that you are somebody. Reminds me of Harold Abrams in the, in the movie Chase of Fire, where he looks and he talks about to his girlfriend about why it's such a big deal to train so hard for this race. He says this, because I have 10 seconds essentially to prove my worth to the world. This is how so many of us are living life. We fear dealing with God because we don't think, we don't think he can do it well. So this is even how some of you are doing your relationship with God. 
Salads, your direction. In hearing from various folks this week from the community groups, here, here's the agitation that seemed to come out, and there was deep agitation. It is this. The very idea of trying to take two or three or four hours and sit, sit in stillness and quiet and seek to dwell with God, it frightens us. It scares us. And there are a couple reasons for that. One, maybe someone has never walked us through what it looks like to, to sit with the Lord. But I think primarily the reason why is that you have even turned, we have turned even our relationship with God into something that we accomplish. I, I don't know if I can hold God. I don't think I'll do it very well. Three hours. I don't know what I'm going to say about three hours. We're like people who get really weird before our first dates. In which we feel like we have to have lists of things that we have to talk about. And it just becomes awkward and weird and mechanical. This is how our relationship with God looks like. You dwell with God for this purpose. To dwell with God. And so we often have this view that, well, how am I going to do this? How am I going to do this? I have to accomplish. I have to cheat. I have to, I have to sit with God really, really well. Listen, I... I was thinking about this about a friend recently, someone I'm very close to, who was talking about whenever his mom comes to visit, he calls them the weeks of unmet expectations. Mm. And this is how many of you view your life, right? It's like his mom comes into town and it's like, there's always something, whether it's spoken or unspoken, the sense of like, I'm a disappointed mother. And I don't know what it is. I don't know if it's just who I am, if it's something I have failed to do or not do, or whatever it is. But this is how many of us view our time with the words. Like God is always nitpicking at us. Oh, you lost your train of thought in prayer. Let me, let me fix your tire for you. But that's this is the, oh, God coming in and looking at our kitchen and going, this is such a mess. Why can't you keep your kitchen clean? And this is how we view our relationship with God, as if God's coming into our life and he's just kind of nitpicking us as we try to spend time with him. But listen, beloved friends, I would long for you to be set free from that. To go for a walk and talk to God, and maybe your mind will not be in this. And then you eventually back 20 minutes later, you come back and you're like, oh, I was talking to God. But you keep doing that. Because guess what? You will probably still talk to God more there and call it more there than if you hadn't tried at all. On the Sabbath, we see some of our labors, all our attempts to get ahead, and we simply, our, what we're supposed to do is to reside at the foot of grace. <laughs> Sabbath is a day that points us and reminds us week in and week out that our salvation, and indeed our closeness and intimacy with God, is not bound up in what you have accomplished and how great your performance is, but it is bound up in God's grace found us in Jesus Christ. Jesus says this to us. In his life, death, and resurrection, he says, I have done all the work necessary for the Father to fully accept me. All of it. And I have done all that is necessary to give you an identity that you can never build and to give you an identity that you can never lose. And then so, so you can know you're worthy and you're worthwhile. And God gives the Sabbath to us week in and week out to remind us of what Jesus said on the cross, which was what? To tell us, God, it is finished. All of your seeking of your own righteousness, of all trying to make yourself look good in front of God, all these things are finished. Finished, he says on the cross. Here's a quote from a very old hymn. Again, his title is neither, Nothing Either Great or Small. And here's how it goes Nothing Either Great or Small. Nothing Sinner, No. Jesus did it. He did it all long, long ago. It is finished. Yes, indeed. Finished every jot. Sinner, this is all you need. 
tell me, is it not? Cast your deadly doing down. Down at Jesus' feet, stand in him and him alone, gloriously. Because rather than actually have Sabbath rest, ultimately you must find it here. You must find your rest in Jesus. And his accomplished and finished work for you. Jesus is your rest. He has accomplished rest for you. Matthew 11, 28, Jesus says, Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Are you heavy laden today? Are you exhausted? As a mom and a dad, feeling like you're, you're, that this parenting thing is your righteousness, that you're trying to look good in front of God. That God ex- accepts you based on how well the job, how many times you, you did or didn't yell at your kids this week. Be fearful of failure. Is that exhausted you, your constant fear of what the world's going to bring into your life? Not feeling like you measure up? That my goodness, my grade point average is this. My job is this. I'm a young guy in my 20s, and my job is just selling this. Am I going to be better than this or for me to be acceptable? No, no. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. The Sabbath is for you to come enjoy rest. You know, so here's what it doesn't say it doesn't say this. Come to me, all who are put together. All of you who know how to have long seasons of prayer and dwell with me closely for four and five hours at a time. You can come to me. All come to me, all who are confident and successful. No one say, come to me, all who are what's required to come to Jesus. Weary. Weary. Come, ye sinners, poor and wretched, weak and wounded, sick and sore. Jesus called you to himself. The only thing it says in that hymn is what will keep you from him is not recognizing how desperately you need him. Augustine said it best our hearts are restless. Our hearts are restless until they find the rest in thee, O God. You found it in the grace of Jesus and not your work. Finally and lastly, the Sabbath leads our souls to rest because on the Sabbath we drink deeply of the grace of God in Christ Jesus. But then also the Sabbath finally reorients us to heaven. Reorients us to heaven. And here we need to get a sense of the whole Bible story a little bit. Remember last week in Genesis, in Genesis chapter 20, the, the, the root of the Sabbath commandment is in the fact that God rests on the seventh day of creation. That God rested. And that God put his feet up. But then in Genesis chapter 3, what happens? The rest that was here, sin entered the world. And that shatters the rest that was supposed to be had in the world. So in response, in a sense, God gives up, gets up out of his chair from his, his seventh day creation rest and begins a process of recreating the world that we are actively seeking to destroy. And the whole Bible is a story of how God is going to seek to bring about recreation or recreation to restore and renew this broken world. And this work of recreation, recreation, and new creation was and is accomplished through the work of Jesus. Jesus came here to begin the process of, as it says in Revelation chapter 21, to make all things New. Why is why do you, you, you look through the, the parables and the miracles of the gospels? You know the day in which Jesus seems to be most active in doing this. You know what day it is? It's the Sabbath day. Now he may have just been doing that because he wanted to take off the Pharisees. That might be a legitimate reason, but actually the reason why he's doing it is this. 
because he's giving us a foretaste of what the ultimate Sabbath rest in heaven will look like. What will happen in our Sabbath rest? There will be no more tears. There will be no more crying. There will be no more death. There will be no more paralytics. There will be no one dying of cancer. There is healing that happens on the Sabbath. That Jesus heals men over and over and over on the Sabbath to point forward to the day in which we will all be made new, in which our bodies will be broken in the morning. And the resurrection of Christ Jesus, it is the first fruits, as Paul says, of this new creation that is coming. It is now coming, and it someday will come to fullness. And when Jesus returns, we will enter into what is the ultimate Sabbath, the fulfilled Sabbath, an eternal Sabbath. Right now, we get one in seven. One day, you will have all of eternity to rest. Therefore, here's what the Sabbath is. It's looking back, yes, to Jesus' completed work. But it's also looking forward to your ultimate Sabbath rest in heaven. Now, for Sabbath, a good Sabbath keeping ought to be a foretaste of heaven. It is a foretaste of heaven. To keep the Sabbath is to look to the future when we will finally perfectly know the ceasing of all of our labor and all of our work. The ultimate resting in the completion of God's purposes for this world, where there is no more sorrow and no more sickness. And there, remember, I would suggest that you. That Sabbath keeping involves worship, yes, of course, silence and rest in all of who God is and what He has given you, of course, but it should also involve this feasting and celebration. And we should anticipate the future banquet table or with Jesus in heaven. So you should feast together. Margaret Dawn, once again, she says this observing the Sabbath includes not only the freedom from and repentance for work and worry. Then there is the renewing of our whole being in grace-based faith. But also the Sabbath provides us the fun and festivity of a weekly eschatological party. That, that's a big 50-cent word, eschatological. It starts with eschaton, it means the last things. And means it is a fun and festivities that look forward to the party that we're going to have in heaven, is what she's saying. There is in the Sabbath day the rest and joy that comes from looking ahead to our future experiences of God's grace, to the future hope that is stored up for us there in heaven. And this is important. This is important. Because the exhaustion of this life is not simply the fact that you have to go to work, or that you have to change diapers, or that you're still struggling with sin. But the exhaustion of this life is this, is that because you live in a broken world still, that so much of the reason why we are weary deep down in soul is because of the sorrows of our past and our present cling to us. That we, we have, like I was praying earlier, that we remember the anguish of what it was like to lose a child in utero. And it hits us and it stings us and it brings weariness to our souls to process through that once again. And therefore, an important part of Sabbath keeping is looking forward to heaven with anticipation of our intimacy with God, and when we will finally and fully be all that God has made us to be, and when our world is finally all that God has created to be. When we'll be restored to the children and the parents and the brothers and sisters that we have lost, where we won't lose jobs, where we won't be ashamed. It says this in Isaiah chapter 25, verses 6 through 8, this beautiful image in the Old Testament, on this mountain says, the Lord of hosts, will make for all the peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, a rich food full of marrow, of aged wine, well-refined. 
Verily God really is in wine. It's number seven. And he will shout, swallow up on this mountain, the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all the nations, and he will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from our faces and reproach of his people who have lived from all the earth. The Lord God has spoken. There's power and hope and anticipation of our future rest. And the Sabbath day is a day given to you to anticipate that, to think about it, to meditate on it. Listen, for some of you, for some of you, the things that have been done to you, the sorrows of this life, they will stay. There are wounds there that will remain for the rest of your life. And there is no amount of Sabbath keeping one in seven that will ever make you full, full, and complete once again. Here's the illustration from one counselor who, who understood this. He said this in this account. He said, I sat one day with a young woman who had a desolate past, a blighted landscape of childhood neglect and sexual abuse, and the many broken pieces of her own bad choices. She sat before me and she poured out her story, and I sat speechless. And now, should say, what should I say? I prayed one of those desperate counselor prayers. Oh God, oh God, oh God, I have no idea what to say. And then God slipped me an insight. Timely as manna dropped from the sky, he showed me that her past may be beyond repair, at least on my watch. If there was any good thing there to salvage, salvage I knew not how. But in the same instant, God showed me she still had her future. And it was vast, and it was unbroken, and it was pristine and radiant. It was pure promise, a glory that would be revealed in her, a glory that far outweighed her light and momentary troubles now. The glory of the one who was coming to redeem and transform her. Her past was a tragedy to lament, but her future was an epic to anticipate. Our citizenship is in heaven, Paul says, and we eagerly await a Savior from there, Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control will transform our lowly bodies so they will be like his glorious body. The Sabbath day, you'll be able to reflect on what life will be like in that day. And God, we have finally entered the full and complete and ultimate rest. Sabbath is to help train your restless heart heavenwards. And it borrows from the logic of this that Jesus gives in his parables of how much more. But this is what Jesus would do. He'd come to the disciples and say, hey, you being evil fathers, when your child asks for a piece of bread, you don't give him a rock or a snake, do you? And then he says this, how much more will my heavenly father give you this? In other words, when you begin to think heavenly, you think how much more thoughts, which he goes something like this. If this meal with friends and family is rich, how much more will the banquet table in heaven be great with my king? If resting in this path of sunlight is refreshing on, on this Sabbath, how much more to rest in that place with God and the Lamb shining brighter than any sun? If lovemaking with my spouse is blissful, how much more would no eye has seen and no ear heard but which God prepares for those he loves? Take anything you delight here on earth, your children, your crapper, the sweet corn from your butt from your garden, drench of course in butter, and you enjoy them all and you find the rest of them, but imagine how much more. Sabbath gives you the space to sit there. It gives, you, it's, gives you the space to let your mind run wild with creativity of the how much more to heaven. So what a joy, what a delight. My goal this morning is this. 
is that we would end all of this talk about is this Saturday, is it Sunday, do we have to do this or do we not have to do this? My question to you is, why would you not want to keep the Sabbath? What a delight. Can you imagine in your life not keeping the Sabbath? It is a sacred day. It is a day which in some ways we walk on holy ground. We, we would absolutely view, view the Sabbath in this way. My goodness, we would do anything. We would seize anything in order to enjoy a day like this once a week. Kind of like African Americans in Texas when they celebrate Juneteenth. You know what Juneteenth is? Juneteenth is June 19th, it's a holiday. June 19, 1865, word reached San Francisco the port of Galveston that the Civil War was over. But that wasn't the most surprising revelation to many of the people in Texas. You see, through that momentous event, though that event was momentous, you see, the Emancipation Proclamation had been signed two and a half years earlier. But, lo and behold, imagine this, they, the Texans hadn't actually told their slaves about that. So they had no idea that they were emancipated and they were free. So on June 19th, not only did the black population discover that the Civil War was over, but they found out that they were free. So every year after that, the black men and women of Texas would refuse to work on June 19th, and this drove their white employers crazy. They said this, for us, they said, work on June 19th would be sacrilege. It was a holy day. It was a sacred day because that was the day in which we were finally set free. I present to you, brothers and sisters, a Christian holiday. It's called the Sabbath. It's the day where you celebrate every week that God, by His grace, has set you free. I hope you enjoy it. Let's pray. Oh, gracious God, I pray that you would put an end, as that old hymn said, we would set down all our deadly doing. And instead, we would fall down at the feet of Jesus. And we would swim with the grace of what you've given us through the cross. And then you would, you would enliven our minds with beautiful thoughts, creative thoughts, of the how much more is of heaven. Oh, gracious God, I pray that you would help us to get there. That we would relinquish the control of our life, relinquish all of our longing to work out our salvation our own, by our own strength and by our own power. Oh, gracious God, I pray that we would be a church that keeps your Sabbath well because we delight in you and what you've accomplished for us. So, gracious God, do what you have to do. Lord, force the hard conversations in families this week between moms and dads and amongst maybe groups of single men and women who would look around the room and go, how, I, how do I have to reorient my life to swim so wonderfully in the grace of Jesus? It is so worth it. It is so worth it. We have to do this. We are compelled to do this. Oh, gracious Heavenly Father, I pray you send your spirit and fill us up for that task so that we might enjoy you more day in, day out, but we get to be God's love. Jesus, we pray. Amen.
understand. You've never seen.